Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege uh, to come before my brothers and sisters and share uh, what you've been teaching me. Uh, keep me humble, dear Lord. This is about uh, you and it's not about me. Help us to learn the things you want us to learn today, Father. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So my name is Lou Sansone, and um, let's see, I was born in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and the reason I was born in Brooklyn, New York, was my parents were going to Pratt Art Institute, which is one of the finest uh, art schools in America. Uh, and because of that, they gave me a real appreciation uh, for art. Uh, so I was kind of raised differently than a lot of kids. And so my first question for you all is, you know who this is? Who knows who this guy is? Who is he? What do you think he is? This is Rembrandt, right? This is Rembrandt. Yeah. And uh, Rembrandt was a believer. He uh, was born around 1603 or something like that, lived around 65 years. Um, he painted a lot of religious paintings, but a lot of non-religious paintings as well. And this is him, sort of middle age. Uh, Rembrandt was a very deliberate painter. Uh, underneath all of what you see there are lots of what are known as underpaintings, lots of other layers of paint. And if you, uh, the closest place I think for Rembrandt's are Boston Museum of Fine Art. There's two or three of them there. And if you've never seen a Rembrandt, if you walk through the Boston Museum of Fine Art, uh, pretty soon you'll say, that, that looks like a Rembrandt. Go over there and look. It's different than any other thing you'll see. He, I think, was one of the, if not one of the best painters during the Renaissance, um, certainly one of the top. All right, let me see if I get this to go. All right. <clears throat> so Rembrandt painted a number of religious paintings. And they're often dark, uh, and certainly when I'm displaying them here, it's difficult to see what you're looking at. But this is known as uh, the raising of the cross. The raising of the cross. Christ has been nailed to the cross. And uh, he's being lifted up. Uh, let me get my little laser pointer. Let me get this going here. Come on, let's see, okay, let's turn that on. All right, there we go. Yeah, this guy here, that's one of the Roman centurions. It's hard to see here, but these are the other criminals who their hands are bound. They're going to be crucified too. This is a man who's kind of pulling up uh, the cross. And there's, it's hard to see, but there's a man pushing it up. And then there's others around here watching uh, what is going on. So that's the raising of the cross. Uh, this is called the descent from the cross. Christ has died, and now he's being taken off the cross. Uh, you can see Joseph of Arimathea there. Now keep in mind, this is a European version of what happened. It's not historically accurate. I mean, Christ... He looks like a, a European. He doesn't look like a Jew. But that's not the point. We don't really know what Christ looked like. But having looked at that, do you notice anything unusual about 
these pictures. So, who is this guy? Do you know who he is? That, that's Rembrandt. Rembrandt has painted himself into this picture. Here's Rembrandt here. He's also painted himself into this picture. And so the question is, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Was he just a narcissist? Why did Rembrandt paint himself in that picture? You know, Rembrandt would have, it probably would have taken him several weeks to paint this picture. It wasn't quick. It wasn't like a plein air painting. Plein air is you go out there and you paint right away and you try to capture it all in, you know, one day. Rembrandt took weeks probably to paint this. Why do you think he put himself in that picture? Right. Yes, exactly right, Alan. Thank you. Yeah, Rembrandt knew that he put Christ on the cross. It was his sin that put Christ on the cross. He's identifying with that. There's no way to look at what's going on and not realize, I did this. I put him on the cross. And so did I. And so did you. Now, if for some reason you're sitting here today and you're looking at this and you can't put yourself in Rembrandt's place, I would ask you to think about that. Everything that needed to be done for your salvation and for my salvation was done there. There was nothing more. Rembrandt couldn't repent anymore. Rembrandt couldn't make Jesus the Lord of his life anymore. Everything that needed to be done to secure Rembrandt's salvation was done on that cross. Christ died for our sins and was risen from the dead. There's nothing you can add to it. We receive it as a free gift. So I guess my question to you today, maybe people watching, is can you identify with Rembrandt? Can you say, yeah, he's my Lord. I put him on the cross. He took my place. He took my place. It's a simple, it's a simple exchange. It's not that complicated. We like the, we, the Christians like to overcomplicate and use all kinds of fancy words. He, Christ, took Rembrandt's place, and Rembrandt knew it. Okay, so now we're good with that. Let me try to find what we're really, well, I shouldn't say what we're really looking at. That's what we're really looking at. This, this next thing is just an interesting study. Okay, so, uh, honey in the Bible. And this is one of the verses that talks about honey. Uh, by the way, I have uh, an hour worth of material. I don't have an hour worth of time, which is perfectly fine. This is the kind of study I can just like, uh, you know, <laughs> I never watch movies. But a while ago, my son and my grandson took me to a Spider-Man movie, the most recent one that came out. Hmm. I don't know if you've seen this, 
but it ends abruptly. And you know what it says? You're just going to have to come back and see the rest of it, right? So it's going to come out a year from now. Uh, I'll be back before a year, hopefully, so what we don't get done today, uh, it's a four-part series. Uh, it'll probably stretch into five parts. What we don't get done today, uh, we'll just keep working on. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and they're sweeter than honey. Honey from the honeycomb. It's interesting. I can see the author saying, hey, the most precious thing we have around here is gold. If I had a big pile of gold, I'd feel pretty good about that big pile of gold. I could buy lots of fun toys, right? Uh, but it also says it's sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb. And that's why I wanted to kind of look at this. That's a kind of a metaphor. Honey is so wonderful, so appetizing, so satisfying. Uh, he says the word of God is far better than even that. Now, full disclosure, I'm a beekeeper. And I love little honeybees. In fact, I have a little model one right here. Look at that little guy there. I'm glad. I mean, I bought this as an aid uh, to show people. I'm glad honeybees are actually not this big. I think I would be scared of these things because on the end here is a stinger, okay? Uh, they're fascinating little creatures. And I'll put my, uh, little, my little toy down here, okay? So, what are we going to look at? Uh, four weeks. Uh, the first one is um, really like an overview of the references, and then a bit of an introduction, word definition. I'm going to spend a lot of time on that. Uh, a little bit of beekeeping methods and ancient beekeeping uh, in historic Israel. The next week, what are the implications of a land flowing with milk and honey? And there are many, and we'll look at that. Uh, the third week, honey's many practical uses. And you can read through here. I won't read them all. And then finally, uh, honey in the Word of God is nutritious, delicious. It's a disinfectant and cleansing, and it's healing. It's all of those things. Okay, I'll get past this. All right, why study this topic? Well, uh, <laughs> honey is mentioned in the Bible 60 times. Uh, so maybe there's a good reason why it's always talking about it, why the Word of God is always talking about it. Uh, God's promises to Israel was a land flowing with milk and honey. It's mentioned at least 20 times. So the question is, what did the authors mean by that? Because it's mentioned, you will find out, throughout the Old Testament. And then finally, the Word of God is compared to honey as a figure of speech. And what can we learn about that from its comparison? Now, <clears throat> I want to get the end up at the beginning. So in case, which I will typically not be able to complete, at least today for sure, these are global themes that run through the Bible. God's provision, God's protection, uh, and, God, and, and God's promises. Uh, and honey is no different. I mean, the, the, the promise that God makes 
to the patriarchs and to, and to uh, uh, Moses is I'm going to send you, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And we'll find out that that really is a provision for the Israelites. And furthermore, this is also one of the more interesting things is how honey is so protective. And we'll kind of go, we'll kind of look at that as well. But wherever you go throughout the scripture, you can look at these three things, God promise, God's promises, his provision, and his protection. Certainly when we think about salvation, we have to trust what God has said, that Christ died on the cross and was risen from the dead on our behalf. God loved the world so much that he gave his son that if we believe in him, we'll have eternal life. That's God's promise, and we, we can trust him for all of those things. All right, so what I want to try to do is answer today, uh, what type of honey was the Bible referring to in the phrase, the land of milk and honey? Now, you might think, oh, it's just honeybee honey. Well, actually, that's not true. There's a controversy, and I need to work my way through this uh, and try to uh, at least um, offer a reasonable explanation of what I think is true. Honey from honeybees, and that's the Latin name, Apis mellifera. Uh, honey from dates, which are known as date honey. Uh, or maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe there was no honey there. Any kind of honey was just a figure of speech, right? So what type of honey was the Bible referring to? And number two, uh, is there any evidence that there were domestic honeybees in the Bible lands? And if so, that might answer question number one. And here's where the rub is. Older commentaries question if honey was from bees. And we'll go through that, why they did that. Uh, and then the other thing that's if I was doing, giving this um, talk um, 20 years ago, there wouldn't have been the recent archaeological discoveries that have changed viewpoints. So we're going to look at that. And this, that is quite important. Okay, now, so does it really matter? What's the big deal? Well, older commentaries without modern archaeological evidence of beekeeping defaulted to date honey. Often, when you read old commentaries, they said, no, no, that wasn't really honey from bees. Uh, it was honey from uh, dates. In, unless, unless there was no way around it, like Samson and the lion, Samson goes, there's a, there says there's a, a, a swarm of bees inside the lion's body, and there's honey in there. Well, that's, that's honey from honeybees, right? But there are plenty of places where uh, you could default to, oh, no, that's not really honey from honeybees. It's just date honey. And date honey is you take dates and you smash them up, and it creates like a thick syrup, okay? Uh, why does this matter? Uh, date honey has minimal significance to the land and people. Uh, it's nice, but it doesn't really do much. And we'll, what that do much is, we're going to learn about what when God said, I'm going to give you a land with milk and honey, and if indeed there were honeybees there, that was a big deal. That was a huge deal, and I'll, I'll tell you, and we'll discover together why that is true. Domesticated honeybees have a significant impact on both flora and fauna. Why? 
Why on animals? Because honeybees uh, love to pollinate things, and they love to pollinate things that animals like to eat too. So if you have a vigorous agri- uh, you know, uh, uh, flora going on, lots of plants, then your animals have something to eat. If you don't have much for the animals to eat, well, it's not good for them either. So honeybees have an impact on both flora and fauna. Guess what? As well as metallurgy. You say, what can honey do for metallurgy? Well, casting of metals using the lost wax method. You may not realize this, but the only wax in ancient times was beeswax. There was, you know, the wax we use now, we, yes, we have beeswax, but we, most of the wax are petroleum products. They're, they're byproducts of, of, uh, of distillation, of cracking. And so uh, back then, you needed wax if you were going to use the lost wax method. And we'll go into uh, what that meant. In shorthand, the tabernacle, if you read through the construction of the tabernacle, there's all these castings that take place, especially for the curtains, all these rings. Those almost certainly were done using the lost wax method. And you need wax to do it. Uh, And then also, if you have honey, uh, domesticated bees, then the, the honey and the wax can be used for medicine uh, and also cosmetics, things like that. So having domesticated honey bees in where you're going is a big deal, okay? All right, so look, we're going to look at the definitions here. Uh, I freely admit, I am not a language expert, not even close. So the best I can do is tell you what the words were there. This is the, the Strong's uh, uh, key to these things. And the main word is this word, uh, debash. Uh, it's number 1706, Strong calls it that. That is, when you look up in Strong's concordance, you see all the words for honey. Uh, it's, it's almost invariably, I would say in the Old Testament, it's always uh, this number here. It's this it's this Hebrew word. It's always this word, okay? The, uh, and then if you go uh, look at the Greek, it's only used a few times here, uh, Meli, and I think it's probably where we get part of the, uh, the Latin derivative for the honeybee. That's only used a few times in the, in the New Testament. Okay, so uh, you can see Strong's definition, debash. Uh, it means a thick, gummy uh, substance, honey, uh, and a syrup. And in the New Testament, it, it, means, it means honey. But the problem is, uh, with this study, and where we kind of have to, unfortunately, do our homework, is the uncertainty of what this word means. It's, it's not clear, because this can be used both ways. Now, you see here, these are just smashed up dates. And when you smash them up enough, you get date palm uh, honey. Uh, and of course, we know what honeybee honey is, is this. But these are very, very different. I mean, just for instance, this never spoils. Never spoils. This does. Once you open that jar, you've got like two weeks and it's going to go rancid. All right, so it's a big deal. We don't understand that without refrigeration, being able to keep food and not have it go bad is a big deal. And honeybee honey 
never goes bad, okay? So if you're saying, listen, can I survive through famine? You can if you've stored up all kinds of honey and other dried uh, uh, legumes and things like that. So having honeybee honey is a big deal. Uh, Am I saying uh, that there's never an instance where there is date palm honey? I'm not saying that, but what I'm going to try to prove, or at least uh, give you a little more certainty, is that uh, more often than not, when you see the word honey in the Old Testament, it's honeybee honey. And so we'll, go, we'll, we'll look at that. Now, this is, a, <laughs> this is a, an interesting thing. So uh, let's just turn to Leviticus so we can say, hey, but we actually opened our Bible today. Because this, this can be a, a situation where hey, we're not even opening our Bibles. Okay, so it's a Levit- Leviticus um, chapter 11. And this all is all about the clean and the unclean. Okay, do I have a pair of glasses here? Yeah. Okay, let me get this. Leviticus chapter 11. Okay. 20 through 21. Okay, so in this whole chapter, it's, it's called the laws about animals and food, the avoid the unclean. And look, you can even just start in verse 13 of Leviticus 11. These, moreover, you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent. Not to be eaten, the eagle and the vulture and the buzzard, uh, the kite and the falcon in its kind, every raven in its kind, the ostrich and the owl and the seagull and the hawk in its kind, and the little owl and a coromont, and the great owl and the white owl and the pelican and the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron in its kinds, and the uh, hopi and the bat. Okay, you can't eat those things. Now, this is where we really get into about honeybees, okay? All the winged insects that walk on all fours are detestable to you. Yet, you may eat among all the winged insects which walk on all fours, those which have above their feet jointed legs which with to jump on the earth. These you may eat of them, the locust in its kind, the devastating locust in its kind, the cricket in its kind, and the grasshopper in its kind. But all other winged insects which are four-footed are detestable to you. Okay, so the question is, well, most insects, this little guy included, he's got six legs, right? One, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, So the deal was... First of all, the four-legged insects, uh, a bit of a figure of speech, number one. Number two, uh, those insects, like the crickets and the grasshoppers, they had six legs, but the two hind legs were jumping legs. And so jumpers, you could eat. But these guys uh, that crawl around, and bees do not hop. Anyone who's a beekeeper uh, knows that bees don't hop. They just crawl around and they fly. You can't eat those, okay? So I guess the question is, well, how are we allowed to eat honey? So 
we're going to take a, a trip back into the Mishnah and the Talmud. So what are the Mishnah and the Talmud? Right around, right after Christ or so, uh, the Mishnah was the written oral record of laws. And what they did there was they uh, wrote them down. They were the, uh, the rabbi's interpretation of the Torah. And they characterized them by, by subject. I don't know if you've ever seen like uh, Nave's topical Bible. You want to look up friendship. All the verses of friendship are in that. Okay, well, the Mishnah was sort of that way, too. You want to find out uh, there was like six sections in the Mishnah uh, and covering different things. Uh, and <clears throat> so eventually the Mishnah became the Talmud, and the Talmud would have the Mishnah in the middle of the page, and then all the different rabbis from years and years and years discussing uh, what the Mishnah said, and the Mishnah was the oral law. Okay. So here's the, here's the big deal here. There's this rule. In accordance with the rule, that which issues from an unclean creature is unclean. And that's in the Mishnah. Okay? That which comes from an unclean animal is unclean in itself. It should follow that bees' honey is forbidden since they belong to a class of unclean insects. The rabbis, however, permitted its use by asserting that the honey is not a product of the bee. It's merely stored in its body. So if you go and look at these sections in the Mishnah, this is kind of interesting. There's this big discussion about um, can you drink, and I don't mean to be gross, but can you drink horse urine, uh, cow urine, or donkey urine? And um, they go through this elaborate uh, discussion and argumentation that, no, you can't drink horse urine, and you can't drink um, uh, cow urine, but you can drink donkey urine. <laughs> and the, reason, the reason you could drink donkey urine, it, they, they, well, first of all, they said donkey urine cures jaundice. So that was something good. Now, I am not saying that the Mishnah and the Talmud are divine or they're inspired. They're not. But these are the machinations that went on. And it's kind of interesting to look at this because it is true that the honeybee is an unclean insect. You cannot eat a honeybee. The question is, if you can't eat a honeybee, why can you eat the stuff the honeybee makes? So the, the, the reasoning really comes from the donkey urine reasoning. And the donkey urine is... They, they, they reason that the donkeys drink water, water goes in the donkey, and comes out of the donkey. Now, it does that with horses and cows, too, but for some reason they felt that the donkey was unique, and so the donkey had not done anything to the water other than it, the water passed through the donkey. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. so, and they also reasoned that for the honeybees. They said... The honeybee goes to a flower and drinks nectar. It's like sugar water. And the honeybee goes and deposits the nectar in the honeycomb, and he hasn't changed the, the nectar at all. It's still the nectar from the flower, and the bee was just like a taxi. It took the nectar from the flower and put it in the honeycomb. So they said, that's okay. And this, this is this little quote here. 
uh, is also from the, uh, the Talmud. For what reason did the sages say that the honey, bee, the honey of bees is permitted? It is because they bring the nectar from the flowers into their body, but they do not excrete it from their body as a bodily excretion. So they felt that it was okay to have honey. Now, the other thing they were kind of missing was that John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey, and there were other instances where people were not condemned for eating honey. And oh, by the way, um, the manna uh, in the desert tasted like honey. So if honey was something that was, you shouldn't have eaten, I don't think God would have said, I'm going to give you this uh, miraculous food, and oh, by the way, it's going to taste like something you shouldn't eat. So, I mean, it, but the, the rabbis had to reason this out. And oh, by the way, uh, I did talk to John Miles about this, and we had a good discussion about the machinations uh, in, in this particular uh, instance. Okay, so uh, here is a journal article, and throughout uh, the four weeks we're going to discuss things, you will see me bring up journal articles. Uh, I like them because unlike anything you can find on the Internet, uh, they've been peer-reviewed by subject matter experts. So by the time an article has made its way into a technical journal, it's been peer-reviewed by other experts. It's not just someone's op opinion. So there was this particular article. Bees Honey from Relaya to Metaphor in Biblical Wisdom Literature, and it's by this uh, professor Tova Forti, okay? And it's a recent publication. And it's a quote here, in biblical literature, the word debash denotes various types of fruit syrup, as well as honey produced by bees. That is why the use of debash in its many occurrences in the Bible must be contextually determined. Uh, and Tova's uh, paper is like 15 pages long. You're going to grind through that. Now, another professor, who, uh, Professor Mazar, we're going to look at uh, later on. It probably won't get to today. We might. Uh, he says, reading Tova's paper, this is his quote, a careful reading of biblical metaphors mentioning honey led Forti, Tova Forti, to suggest that they refer mostly to bees' honey. So these, I'm going to say, are... are um, uh, people sh who should be at least taken seriously. They, uh, they're Jews, and they, they understand the culture. They live in the land. Uh, so this is one of the, the, inst one of the reasons, I think, uh, that it's more likely that when you see honey in the Bible, it's honeybee honey. And like I said, it does matter. Uh, now, this is just a little side jaunt about the date palm. It used to be thought that the date palm didn't need any kind of insect, it just needed wind to pollinate. Because with date palms, there's boy palms and girl palms. And uh, they used to think that it was just the wind that did it all. But what you see here, and th this was like a, a, a compilation. This is uh, in the Annals of Botany here. Uh, again, it's a recent, a recent publication. I, I try to find stuff that's not from 1956, if possible. A lot of that stuff is just simply not true. So here's, this is from the, uh, the honeybee. You know, more than 25%, well, I guess they're saying 26% of all the pollination for date palms comes from the honeybee. The, the real story here is this is uh, wind. 
only really 7% of pollination they have determined actually comes from wind. So the date palm needs insects and it needs the honeybee. So it's kind of curious if most of the honey, if you took the position that most of the honey in the Old Testament was date palm honey, without insects and without bees, you would not have the abundance of date palm. So you kind of need, it's like the chicken and the egg, you, you kind of need bees to give you the date palm. And this is just a little picture of modern day pollination. We got this tractor thing with a super duper blower and it kind of goes through the date palm um, groves and blows things around. Another thing that it was very labor intensive, they would chop off um, part of the boy date palm and tie it to the girl date palm. But there's a lot of work if you're gonna go through hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these date palms. Uh, and guess what these are? These are bees. They, they brought bees into the, to the groves. So date palms need bees. Okay, so uh, Old Testament usage throughout. Yes, There's, these are all the verses where you see that word debash throughout. The law, books of history, books of poetry, and the prophets. It's throughout the Old Testament. And you see all the way up... Uh, 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 to, to Ezekiel. Uh, and there's like about 60 references here. Now, uh, so how is honey used? Tech, you know, what, what type of speech is honey used? And I'm taking my information from this, this book by Roy Zook, Basic Biblical Interpretation. And so these are his words, not mine. Uh, he says there's at least three types of uh, uses in speech. Uh, ordinary or literal. It plainly expresses the literal facts. And we remember John, there's, a, there's a case where Jonathan tasted some honey. He literally tasted honey. There's no figure of speech there, okay? He tasted honey. Uh, then Roy says there's this thing called figural literal. And he says uh, they're picturesque out of ordinary usages, usages and figuratively expressing literal facts. And this land flowing with milk and honey kind of fits into uh, both of these, figuring, figuratively expressing literal facts, but it's also picturesque. So this particular phrase is a bit of both. It, it's on the picturesque, it's like, you're going to a fantastic, wonderful land with meat and potatoes or knishes and who knows what, right? It's going to be great. And oh, by the way, it does have honey and it does have milk, okay? And then a true figure of speech, something other than its literal meaning, a metaphor. And then we see here, the word of God is sweeter than honey, okay? The word of God doesn't taste like honey. It's just a figure of speech. So these are like three different ways it's used. So then, if you look at all those uh, usages in the uh, Old Testament, I kind of <laughs> went through each and inventoried each and every one. These are literal use for honey from honeybees. It's not in question. So these ones here are all from honeybees. This is also literal for honey from the honeybee or the date palm. And these can be in question. Context may help you understand that. But so 
I would, I would not go, be dogmatic that any of these are one or the other. I'm going to call it, there, it's uncertain. And uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, still, we still have these guys here. These are still just uncertain how, how, how they're used. Okay, now this is literal figurative use. And they're both, I mean, I just ran out of rows here, so I threw them over here. Uh, the, every one of these red guys here, are there's approximately 20 of these instances where it's saying a land flowing with milk and honey. So remember, it's literal figurative. It's, it's a bit of both, all right? And we can look at this. These are odd examples of ordinary uh, use. Uh, Genesis, uh, ordinary use. Uh, their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present. A little balm, a little honey. Uh, and this, this, by the way, this one here, you really can't tell what it's talking about. Ara aromatic gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Now, I could argue that it's honeybee honey because it's not going to spoil, okay? Because all these other things... These, these, are, these are keepers. They, they don't spoil. But maybe it is a date, honey. We simply don't know. Okay? Uh, Ezekiel, the house of Israel named it manna. Ezekiel, sorry about that. Exodus. Uh, the house of Israel named it manna. And it was like coriander seed, white. And his taste was like wafers with honey. Okay, so that's a, um, a literal use. It kind of tasted like honey. It wasn't honey, but it tasted what, like what honey tastes like. Again, we don't know, was that honeybee honey or date honey? And we can go through judges. You can see these examples here. Uh, and a couple more. Uh, this, is an inter this is an interesting one here. I mean, Leviticus 2.11. Let me, let me just back up a second. I've got to see. Did I? Yeah, okay. This one is not in question. Uh, this is an interesting one. This, this one here. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer it up in smoke, any leaven or any honey. Now, this is honeybee honey. Uh, and there's a few different ways to get to that answer as an offering by fire to the Lord. Uh, and <clears throat> so leaven, leaven is bad. Okay, you, you can't offer up, offer up leaven because it has, um, has it's yeast. It, has, it is yeast or it has yeast in it. The, the thing with honey, if you're not careful, uh, it has yeast in it too, naturally occurring yeast. And you can make mead with honey. And I don't particularly like mead. I think it tastes terrible, but some beekeepers like to make mead. I... I I think it tastes like Listerine, but uh, other guys, uh, other guys uh, like it. Uh, and and the, the problem uh, with honey, um, and this is a little bit of a technical problem, so when, when bees are gathering the nectar, and this is actually a fascinating point of, uh, of beekeeping, when bees are gathering nectar, it's a, a, a few percent uh, sugars and mostly water, and then they dehydrate it within the hive down to 18%, approximately 18%. And the bees know once it's at approximately 18%, they cap the honey. 
And at that point, it will never spoil or ferment. Now, when I harvest my honey, I have to be careful because you can have, you can use uncapped honey. You have to use a thing called a refractometer. To, it's a scientific instrument to make sure you check the moisture content. 18 and below, you can have uncapped honey that might be 18 and below. The reason it might be uncapped is it used to be capped and the bees got hungry. And they, they uncapped and started eating some of their honey. Or they just didn't have a chance to cap it, and, uh, but it's still perfectly good uh, honey. But somehow, the bees know that it's at 18%. Now, it, now it's time to cap it. Tell me this was an evolutionary process that they have these, these sensors within themselves to tell this is 18%. I have to use a scientific instrument. The bees don't have to do that. They, they know exactly uh, when it is. And the other thing about this, this, this particular one, because I, you know, listen, I got like five minutes left. We're never going to, I'm not going to get through. It was a slide 25. I had 50 slides. There was, there's no way I'm going to get through 50 slides. Like, no. So guess what? I, I have been told... This Wednesday, I am teaching this Wednesday evening, uh, okay? And so you all ought to come back, and it's going to get even better, okay? So this, this part here, uh, the Canaanites and the Hittites, uh, certainly the Hittites, they have found evidence uh, both in their writings and archaeologically uh, of altars that it was clear that they were using honey as part of the sacrifice. And so I can see why God would say, I don't want you looking like those people, okay? Those people, you're, those are pagans. You're displacing them. You're kicking them out of the land. Uh, and I don't want you to emulate uh, their behavior. And so I can also see why God said, uh, no, you can't use uh, honey on the altar because the pagans were doing that, all right? Uh, and th this is another, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this one here. Now, this is even more interesting. You probably remember this little story. The spies go out. Uh, thus they told him, and they said, we went to the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and here is its fruit. And the que you, so you, we all know, what did they bring back on their shoulders? A gigantic cluster of grapes. There wasn't any honey on that pole between their... Uh, their shoulders. We will learn why they thought this had to do with honeybees. We're not going to learn it today. You're going to have to wait, okay? So, so, oh, let's, see, let's see, what else do I have here? Okay. Oh, yeah, and this, and, okay, this is an example of a figurative literal use. And again, I have that same verse because it's being used uh, both, both ways. And this is a literal figurative use uh, uh, of it. Uh, like Job. Um, this is a picturesque one. He does not look at streams, the rivers flowing with honey and curds. Now, now obviously, there's not rivers flowing with honey or curds. It's a picturesque use of that word. And I still have two minutes left. See, I'm, I told the folks on Wednesday night, I don't even need to look at that clock. See, I had this little countdown clock, and it's got a little bit of red left. And once the red goes away, I just can keep looking over here. I don't have to look at anything. I just, oh, I got, I got a little bit of red left. I can keep going until quarter after. All right? So that's how, I'm a simple guy. I don't need it any more complicated than that. Okay. Okay. So here's our two big questions. <laughs> we only got halfway through this. What type of honey 
was the Bible referring to in the phrase, a land of milk and honey? The honey from honeybees? The honey from dates? Date honey? Combination of both or no honey? And somehow, this slide I already have earlier. Hmm. Uh, yes. If you were not falling asleep, I got a little typo here. All right. So we're going to try to still answer these questions. Uh, beekeeping methods. Well, I think we're going to, uh, we've got two slides left. Uh, here's our little guy, right? This g girl, sorry, what, someone say girl? Someone say girl? Because, right, so you do know, or maybe you don't know, uh, bees are predominantly female dominated. Everything has to do with the females in the hive. It's a queen, not a king. The queen does everything. If you don't have a queen in your hive, you're, you're uh, that's okay. We, I'll give, I'll, we'll, okay, quiet. We, I'll, give one, I'll give you one, one minute. If you don't have a queen in the hive, you're, you're, you're a goner. And all the bees that really do anything are girl bees. They go gather the, the nectar and the pollen. They take care of the babies. They do every single thing. Uh, there are some boy bees, a, a few percent of boy bees are called drones, and they have one purpose, and that is to uh, be friendly with the queen to help her have babies, I'll put it that way. Uh, but in the fall, when there's no more babies being had, you will find all the girl bees kicking the boy bees out of the hive to their death. They're dragging them out because... We don't want you eating our honey, and we don't need you until the spring. So get out. Uh, so, and this is a case where the, this idea of a patriarchy, oh, no, 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 no. No, it's a matriarchy, right? The, the women rule in this area. And then just with one last little thing, why are honeybees so important and valuable? And we'll, we'll leave it with this. And this is from the U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration, and many other people will say the same thing. Today, commercial pr production of more than 90 crops relies on bee pollination. Of approximately the 3,600 bee species that live in the U.S., the European honeybee is the most common pollinator, making it the most important bee to domestic agriculture. About one-third of the food eaten by Americans comes from crops pollinated by honeybees, including apples, melons, cranberries, pumpkins, squash, all these things. And I'll just leave you with this. Anyone who drinks almond milk Without the honeybee, you would have no almond milk, or almost no almond milk. All the almonds are grown in Southern California in these huge groves, and every year, a million, approximately a million beehives are brought, are trucked out to California for that pollination uh, season, and then they make a circuit. They go to other places, other uh, types of uh, trees and uh, melons and things like that that need the honeybees. But a million, uh, honey, uh, a million beehives are brought to California. An average tractor trailer has something like 400 beehives on it. So I, I'm not going to do the pulpit math right now because we get ourselves in trouble. Think about a million you know, divided by 400. There's a lot of tractor trailers every year dragging all these bees out to California without the honeybee You'd have no almond milk. Okay, so we're going to stop here, and it's even going to get better next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. You want to come, okay? All right, let's, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your wonderful creation. Thank you for your word, Father, that allows us to continue to plumb its depths, and we never get tired of it. Thank you for your goodness to us.
In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're going to close this up. All right, get this done.